Welcome to MedSider, where you can learn from a mix of experienced medical device and med tech experts through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Sequoia Capital, Thrive Capital, and Greylock Partners reportedly made a 2x ROI in just two weeks when Facebook acquired Instagram for $1 billion. Yes, that's 2x in two weeks. With that said, why in the hell are VC firms still interested in funding medtech companies when only 50% of all reported exits are less than $100 million and the average cost of attaining a PMA is approximately $94 million? More importantly, what does it take for medical device companies to get a yes for those VCs that are still interested in forking out some cash? Good questions, huh? Inner Lisa Sunan, co-founder and managing member of Silos Group healthcare-focused venture capital firm with approximately $600 million under management. She also serves as, as a director on the board of several Silos portfolio companies, including AngioScore, Patient Safe Solutions, OmniGuide, and Verilite. In this interview with Lisa Sunan, we learn how and why medical device companies will need to adjust and modify their business models in order to succeed in today's healthcare environment. Here are a few of our discussion points. What does Lisa think when the goal of physicians is to, quote, Dagger historical priceless, unquote. Why is healthcare the redheaded stepchild in the world of venture capital? Key action items for early stage medtech companies. Why Lisa and her partners at the Silos Group favor late stage deals in our current economic environment. What's more important in the eyes of medtech VCs? Quality improvements versus cost reductions versus reimbursement. Corporate venture capital arms, friend or foe? And if you're an early stage medical device company, what is the best way to get the attention of Lisa and her partners at the Silos Group? Of course, there's a lot more valuable information we're going to uncover in this interview with Lisa. But before we dig in, you need to listen to these brief messages from our sponsors. And by the way, if you're interested in becoming a MedSider sponsor, go to medsider.com forward slash sponsor. Again, that's medsider.com forward slash sponsor. Now listen up. Did you know that C-level executives from all of the Fortune 500 companies are registered on LinkedIn? Pretty impressive, right? With that said, would you like to know how to connect with some of these prominent leaders and decision makers? Maybe you're looking for your next gig. Would you like to learn how to use LinkedIn in order to make sure you are noticed and seen by recruiters and headhunters? Go to medsider.com forward slash LinkedIn. There, I'll personally show you three steps you can take right now to enhance your LinkedIn profile in order to reach an uber level of exposure. You'll also learn more about our first course in collaboration with Lewis House, who's written two books on how to effectively use LinkedIn. Check it out, medsider.com forward slash LinkedIn. You know it, I know it. The simple reality is that a conference is a huge opportunity to build relationships with extraordinary people people who might have a significant impact on your professional or personal success. To make sure that you maximize the return on your investment of time and money, you can't afford to be a conference couch potato. No, instead you need to be a conference ninja. Go to medsider.com forward slash conference ninja and download the free ebook. You'll find 13 steps you can take right now to make more connections at your next conference. Check it out, medsider.com forward slash conference ninja. Do you struggle with information overload? Okay, that's a stupid question. Of course you do. Who doesn't these days? So what's the answer? It's simple. Go on an information diet with MedSider News. 
MedSider News is the quick and easy way to stay current with the medical device industry. It's the five most essential medical device stories of the week delivered straight to your inbox. And yes, it's absolutely free. So if you want to keep up to date with the latest medical device trends in an incredibly easy way, go to MedSider.com forward slash news. Again, that's MedSider.com forward slash news. Okay, for you med tech and medical device doers, here's your program with one caveat. Due to some technical difficulties, the audio quality is a little bit substandard. But this interview with Lisa Soonan is one that you really don't want to miss. So listen up. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of MedSider. Of course, this is your host, Scott Nelson. And uh, for those of you who are, uh, who are familiar with the program, thanks again for joining us. And then, uh, for those of you who this may be your first or second time listening, this is a show, uh, it's pretty simple. The goal is pretty simple. I bring on... Uh, interesting and dynamic medical device and med tech stakeholders uh, in order to learn, learn as much as possible, learn about their past experiences, what they're doing now, things they've learned, things they, they've learned themselves along the way. So we can take these concepts, these insights home with us and become that, uh, that med tech or that medical device linchpin uh, in your own little ecosystem. That's the, that's the goal. It's really simple. And today's, today's guest is Lisa Student, uh, she is the co-founder and managing member of the Silos Group, which is a healthcare-focused venture capital firm with approximately six hundred million under six hundred million dollars under management. I got that straight from the official bio. Uh, so, welcome to the program, Lisa. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks very much, Scott. And before I forget, Lisa writes a very popular blog, or she blogs, I said, at a very popular website, VentureValkyrie.com. Why don't you spell that domain before we get started, Lisa? Sure, it's Venture, like Venture Capital, V-E-N-T-U-R-E. And then Valkyrie, V-A-L-K-Y-R-I-E.com. All one word, Venture Valkyrie. Venture Valkyrie. And for those of you listening, that's, I hate, I hate like, uh, I, I, I to go along with everyone else, uh, really despise information overload, but Lisa's emails uh, to, her, to her blogger that are the few that get into my uh, inbox as well, so I encourage everyone to go check that out. So, um, Lisa, let's start out with this quote um, from Josh um, Macauer, I think that's how he pronounced last yeah. name. You, mm-hmm. You're probably more familiar with him. Yeah, you're probably more familiar with, with his work than I am. But med, a med tech entrepreneur um, does some investing as well. But a recent quote that I picked up is, is uh, the average cost of taking a product through the 510K process um, is approximately $31 million, and the average cost of getting a product through um, or getting a PMA on a product is, is currently estimated to be around $94 million, excluding reimbursement, sales and marketing activities, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So those two stats, $31 million for a 510K, $94 million approximately for a PMA. As a med tech, do you see that? Does that scare you when, you when you hear those stats, when you read those stats? Well, you know, those stats are interesting. They may be correct on an average. They probably are. Josh is certainly well, um, you know, well knowledgeable and educated about this topic and done a lot of research on it. But I don't think that they are uh, – I don't know in this case the, the law of averages is helpful to the analysis because – the investments you make are on a one-by-one one basis. Nevertheless, there's no doubt that the cost of getting a medical device through the FDA and onto the market to sell has gone up and is going up more and more, particularly as the FDA has become more stringent and as the medical device tax comes to be real, if it does come to be real, it's just a much more difficult time. And, and, and the, the thing that most people forget about altogether or underestimate is the cost of operating your business when you don't have a reimbursement code in the U.S. or any other country where you need one. Um, so, yeah, it definitely gives one pause about 
the risk return profile of medical device deals today versus what they look like, you know, five or ten years ago. Gotcha. And I, I, I always I want to start because it's, it's obviously eye-catching those, those sort of stats, but you operate within this space, and I, I know your firm um, invests not only in, in medical device companies but also kind of in, in healthcare IT as well. But mm-hmm. with those stats and in relation to all these forces coming, you know, sort of squeezing the med tech environment right now, do you find yourself leading more towards like healthcare IT, especially in light of the Instagram, you know, the one bill, the one miss, the one billion dollar acquisition of Instagram by Facebook, et cetera? Do you find yourself sort of biasing and maybe trending towards health IT slash healthcare kind of services versus med device, med tech devices? Well, I mean, for us, we've always trended a little bit more to the IT and services side as a firm. We do less medical device investing than we do the other. Um, and I don't know, you know, I suspect it'll get a little more, you know, trended in that direction in the next few years. Um, but it's not really an issue of, of the, those statistics that you quote from, from Josh. They're really, it's really a function of, you know, the potential returns, the difficulty of the market, the size of the markets, the changing, you know, dynamics and reimbursement. It's, it's, a, it's a complicated set of issues, whereas the market right now is really demanding methodologies to reduce cost in the healthcare system. If you look at the health reform law, which may or may not survive the Supreme Court, who knows, but probably many of the, the actual outcomes of it will survive because the economy demands that cost reduction occur. But if you look at that, you know, the, the place that people with money, uh, and I mean by that I mean customers, are really focusing their energy right now. It's on ways to improve productivity, improve revenue, and, you know, reduce the cost of delivering services. And so that lends itself to things like IT and services more than it does medical devices. Nevertheless, there's, go- there's always going to be some good medical device investments, and those are going to be the ones that figure out ways of delivering true quality improvement, you know, on an evidence-based quality improvement at a lower overall cost of the system. And it may be not necessarily just a lower price, although that's a plus too. But at a, you know, it reduces hospitalization days, it reduces side effects, you know, it reduces the, or eliminates other costs, you know, by using this device over that device, what have you. So there's always going to be an opportunity there. I think it's just becoming more um, clear what kinds of opportunities those are. Gotcha. Okay. Great. And that provides for a little bit of a segue because I'd like to focus most of this interview on, on, on not only the current trends, but also these, these changing business models, some of them you just described. That, that medical device companies are going to have to sort of be nimble and sort of uh, you know, change some of these models around to fit the current funding uh, and investing environment. Um, and so one of those growing trends, you, you mentioned a couple, um, but one of those is, is the fact that physicians are no longer, um, in, in, in some cases, it, they definitely still have a, lar- you know, a large, you know, their, their opinion definitely counts. I, don't wanna, I, don't, I certainly don't want to uh, make light of that. But, but because more and more of the practices are being acquired by, you know, by, by, mm-hmm. by the providers, by the healthcare systems, by, you know, individual um, hospitals, their opinion is mattering less and less. And, and you know, the, the cost of these healthcare systems are, are becoming a, a really big issue. And, and mm-hmm. some of the quotes, I think, actually, that you blogged about in, in one of your recent posts uh, was a couple quotes from, from Dr. Sperling at the Mayo Clinic, you know, right. some of the things that he mentioned, taking a dagger, the historical price list. <laughs> Reducing the number of, of vendors, volume purchasing discounts, evidence-based decision-making, as you just mentioned, thinking twice about using advanced technologies when older, cheaper version is available. I mean, those are kind of shocking. And for those of us who are kind of at the, you know, the field level within some sort of sales and marketing capacity, it may not be news to us, but 
interesting nonetheless to hear you know someone like that speak uh, speak on the stage about issues like that. Um, that's a huge trend. Mm-hmm. And so, with that said, what do you you know what are what are some key characteristics when you know when when a medical device come medical device company comes and pitches the Silos Group on this next mm-hmm. new device? What what are some of the key criteria that you look at then? Um, yeah, I thought those comments by Dr. Sperling were really interesting. Um, you know, he's a professor of orthopedic surgery at Mayo, and Mayo is, you know, generally believed to be, and I think is, you know, one of those organizations that really advances the science and, and tries new things. And, and yet the fact that they believe their revenue is going to change from a 70% um, fee-for-service model, you know, or, 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 or excuse me, 100% fee-for-service model now to 70% full risk capitation in the next five years is really interesting because, you know, that, that tells the story there. Um, you know, my background is, is from the managed care world before I did this job. And so I, uh, you know, come out of a world where thinking about how you balance cost and quality um, every day when you're delivering clinical services is paramount. And for us as a firm, you know, that was sort of the genesis of our investment strategy is how do you keep those things both very much in the forefront at the same time. Um, so when we look at medical devices, we co- when they come in, the first thing we usually say to them is, like, let me just assume the technology you have works for the minute. You know, don't tell me about what it's made of or all that. Just tell me how it saves money to the healthcare system while improving or maintaining quality. And the ability for them to articulate the economic story behind their device is the number one gate they have to get through to get us to pay more attention. Um, and I think it's quite different from the way most people look at these deals. Um, it leads us probably to do some of the some different kinds of deals than some of the others have done. Um, but if you walk through our portfolio, I could tell you that story on each one of them um, because it's what we look at first. And we've always believed, and you know, I think time has caught up with us. It didn't always, it wasn't always true that people cared yeah. about that. But now I think time has caught up with us. And and if you look at you know the kinds of things Dr. Sperling said, it's very clear. Um, how much that matters and how much, you know, sort of the development of Me Too types of products is just not going to be sustainable. I, I, I teach a class at Berkeley on uh, healthcare venture capital. One of my colleagues from the field came in and brought a picture with him of six um, artificial knees from six different companies and put it up on the screen and asked, can anybody tell the difference between these things? They literally looked identical. Um, it was like one of those, you know, kids' games where you look at six pictures of a pig and try to figure out which one is different, you know. Um, yeah. so they all looked exactly the same, and, of course, we're all, you know, sort of um, novices in the room. But he said that that chart had been put in front of the CEOs of the companies that sell those six products, and very few of them, almost none of them, could identify their own product. And I, <laughs> you know, I think that's, that's a awesome. stunning piece of information, really. If these guys can't even tell the differences in their own product, the market certainly doesn't want to or care to unless they're really profound. And I think, yeah. you know, they have to be profound from a care standpoint and from a cost standpoint for anybody to want to support them as businesses. Right, right. And I think actually, I think maybe you even quoted, I can't remember exactly what publication, but I maybe quoted as saying true, inter- true innovation versus these incremental advances mm-hmm. that don't really justify either in either commercialization or even an, an uptick in, you know, in the ASP. Um, so that's that's a great story that even the CEOs couldn't correctly identify the uh, you know the, maybe their artificial knee that was that was shown up on the screen. That's an awesome story. Well, um, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, so 
you know, it's um, so an early stage medical device company that maybe hasn't even maybe hasn't even maybe they're still in friends and family sort of angel money, right? So they're they're at the early stages of, of thinking about this. But what about what about those companies? Um, maybe even some some of those that are that are in your you know your portfolio that that's on your you know the Silos Group website, Silos.com, DSILOS.com, like Angio Score or OmniGuide, et cetera. Is that? I mean, are you seeing it within some of these companies too, having to sort of pivot to a certain degree with their with their model? Um, when it comes to, you know, true innovation versus those incremental advances as we just talked about? Well, yeah. I mean, I th you know, I, yes, absolutely have to think about that. I mean, an advantage, of course, these companies have is they already started from a place of thinking about how um, they need to tell an economic story to, to get ahead because, you know, otherwise they wouldn't be on our website. Um, so from a, right. you know, mindset standpoint, they're already thoughtful about these issues and have sort of been been working on them for some time, um, but you know, but things change around them and make that even more poignant. You know, I, I uh, you know, I think, for instance, uh, of AngioScore, um, a great company with you know tremendous success and big revenue now, and um, but they have recently had to think about you know what changes they need to make in light of the fact that new Medicare guidelines have come out and reduced the number of percutaneous interventions. You know. Uh, uh, angioplasties that are getting paid for by Medicare. You know, for the sure. first time now, if you want to have an angioplasty, not that anybody really wants to have one, but if you're recommended to have one, um, you're going to get required to have a particular measurement, um, fractional flow reserve it's called, um, and if you don't, you know, kind of hit the right number on that, you don't get one. You have to try, you know, and try and fail on a medication regimen first. Um, that's good business, you know, for the healthcare system. I mean, there shouldn't be unnecessary angioplasties if you can do it cheaper and without the you know, risk of side effects and all the rest. So when the procedures get done and when a device gets chosen, a balloon catheter in this case, um, you know, they have to be standing there with a story, a convincing story, then they've been able to do that that tells why their device should be the one picked up off the shelf as opposed to something else when the time comes to actually do the procedure. Yeah. And maybe the better question is, are, are some of these sales and marketing messages changing and incorporating that cost, not just the cost of the device, the upfront cost, but how this can potentially reduce costs down the road? Maybe that's, maybe that's an aspect that you're seeing change. Yeah, well, I mean, I think they, you know, they are finding and, you know, they've done a lot of clinical work to show the advantages of their device. Um, and, you know, when I... When I invest in companies, I encourage them strongly to do not just clinical studies, but economic studies. You know, what costs are you offsetting, whether it's other tests or other interventions or hospital days or whatever, that make your product desirable not just clinically, but also financially? Huh. It gotcha. used to be that when people come into our office and, and pitch to us, and I said, I asked them that question, you know, what does your product do not just clinically, but financially for the healthcare buyer? They'd look at you like, what? <laughs> yeah, I really didn't. Not speaking English, you know. Right. Now, yeah, we, now, uh, you know, they get that question. I mean, it's starting to become an, uh, the thing that they need to answer for everybody, not just me. So I, it's starting yeah. to change. And is that is that something that you can early on when you're initially getting, um, you know, animal data, maybe even maybe beginning to structure a clinical trial? Is that something that that's fairly easy to factor in to a study, the economic? value of a particular device? It's not easy. It's hard um, because some of these um, 
economic impacts are long-term in nature. Um, you know, some of them accrue to different people than who pay for the actual device, which means they're not important to the people who are paying. <laughs> and, you know, they're complicated thoughts because you have to really convince yourself that what you're doing directly offsets, you know, what you think it offsets, um, and that something else wouldn't have the same results. So, no, it's not simple. It's definitely not simple, but, but it's important and it's got to get done. Yeah, and so it, it's almost, it, this isn't going to be easy, but it's almost, do you think it's almost a must anymore to incorporate some sort of economic? I think it's an absolute must. I think it's, yeah. it's been a must for some time, and now it's, you know, like, do or die. Yeah, okay, gotcha. That's good. And i got to think, with your with your background in managed care, kind of before the silos group, and then even in looking at some of your other, you know, portfolio companies in healthcare, IT, and healthcare services, mm-hmm. do you find it easier to kind of, you know, because you could pull kind of from a different angle, and maybe maybe right. you're, you're working with these companies, and they're addressing certain, um, they're trying to disrupt, you know, the market to a certain degree in an effort to reduce inefficiencies, reduce costs, et cetera. And so, can you do you find that beneficial to kind of bring that that sort of picture in in when you're you know working with you know your uh, your your companies on the, the medical device side? Absolutely, because while companies can get through the FDA eventually, unless they really have a flaw. Um, you know, they can't get through Humana or Blue Shield or, you know, United without a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. and in the end, if you don't get reimbursement, and I don't mean a code, because a code is hard enough, you know, getting an AMA code, getting a CPT1 code, that's, that ain't easy. But it doesn't, in the end, answer the question as to whether you're going to get paid for. It may get answered to the question of whether you're going to get paid for my Medicare but it doesn't answer the question you're going to get the commercial market pay. And you you got to have both, really. Um, and so we have a really great, you know, sort of relationships and access to the guys on the payer side uh, to talk to their medical directors and say, hey, is this something you'd ever pay for? Or what would it take for you to agree to pay for this? And then you can go back to the companies and say, okay, this is what you're going to need to demonstrate. So it's really helpful, I think, from our standpoint is that we spend as much time Thinking about the ultimate reimbursement system and, and, and uh, you know, sort of ebbs and flows there as we do about the clinical and the technical and the other stuff. Gotcha. That's good stuff. Okay, so, so looking at some of the other criteria, late stage versus early stage. And I know I think you've, been, you've, you've written and also been quoted as saying that you typically, or maybe not even typically, maybe all the time, uh, your focus is on late stage. Um, mm-hmm. Is that... Is that true, and why? Well, we've, in the past, have done more early-stage investments, um, you know, either companies at revenue or, or on the cusp of launch. But really, over the last several years, we've moved later. And it has a lot to do with this reimbursement issue. Um, you can spend a lot of money sitting around hoping for reimbursement. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.